as people have asked and always say, Aston Martin's not a job, it's a cause. People forget the perspective of what that company was in those days. It was a real labor of love. The nuances from the 1970s Lagonda were so refined and so subtle, but exquisite. What a great car. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jody Kidd. In this series, we talk to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world. I hope you're all really well and getting the chance to see friends and family once again. Thank you so much for all your fantastic feedback about the series. If you haven't had the chance to listen to all of the Chubb interviews, why not check out all of our episodes? My guest today is from a classic car dynasty. His father, Victor, played a huge role in resurrecting Aston Martin. He's a collector, a designer, a classic car specialist. His passion for this fantastic industry is infectious. It's Richard Gauntlet. So it's time to say hello to our special guest, Richard Gauntlet. How are you, Richard? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very, very good. Everything is opening up. There's light at the end of the tunnel. We can see our friends and family. So yes, it's been a tough year, but I'm glad that all the restrictions are easing. We get to give people hugs officially. I always love kicking off the podcast by asking my guests how they first got into cars. And it could be quite obvious. Was it your father's influence? Yes. I don't think I have any memories without there being cars present, certainly. Or yeah. certainly th things with engines. My father was a big collector and obviously the Aston Martin connection. Yeah, it was a great family sort of activity. You know, we were always off to hill climbs and race meetings and car events and it was so there was always and we've got quite a big family so it was always this amazing convoy it was like let's dig everything out of the garage and there was that lovely sort of process beforehand of everyone checking oil and all the engines running outside the house on a sort of cold Cotswold morning really kind of evocative stuff and it was yeah it was a very family activity Oh, I just kind of can picture it now. I mean, how big does this convoy get at one point? <laughs> Was it huge? <laughs> we used to have a house on Tete Rouge Corner at Le Mans, and we all used to go down there. And all the garages had been converted into these sort of bunk bedrooms. Brilliant. So, I mean, the convoy down there could be 50 things from a sort of Morris Minor Traveller to a Le Mans D-type Jag. And oh. everyone just absolutely... Harry Flatters going as quick as they possibly could. I mean, that's the good old days, hey? Yeah, um, yes. Amazing, amazing. And I suppose, you know, talking a little bit about your dad, because at his time at Aston Martin, he was so hugely ambitious, wasn't he? And I mean, he oversaw the introduction of the Virage. He reinvigorated the Zagato relationship um, and also was hugely influential in the Aston Martin racing. He was just a huge character and it's a, it's 18 years since he died now. But I, I mean, I hear his voice on a daily basis making quips and jokes and, and, you know, and yes, I was just, as you said that, I was just thinking ambitious. Yes, bloody ambitious because he went after something where so many had failed. Tell us for, for the listeners out there exactly when he came into Aston Martin and what he did a little bit because he really turned it around, didn't he? 
it starts a little before that because he actually set out when he was in his 30s he set up an independent uk petrol company called pace petroleum which some people may remember because back in the 70s they sponsored a huge amount of stuff they were the first people to sponsor nigel mansell in formula one they sponsored the rally championships all the hill climbs so that was kind of a big deal and that was him really indulging in his passion and support he was a great believer in supporting things that he loved so he was a big supporter and then when he heard that Aston was yet again, you know, because they, I think they had been bust in 75 and restarted and now it was going to happen again. The way he always described it was how would he tell his grandchildren that he was there in a position to help and didn't bother? Which nowadays seems an unusual thing to say about a motoring brand, but he felt very deeply about it and he was that post-war generation. So I think there was, you know, some more jingoism and nostalgia than perhaps there is today. You know, he set about thinking, okay, so Pace bought into Aston and then he never intended to be chairman, but then took over and got his sleeves rolled up and, you know, fought through the 80s. And then he put together the deal with Ford. And as, as he said about that, it was the only way to secure Aston's future, because if it went to another private set or a private, you know, group of people, it just was never going to carry on in the modern world. Yeah, I remember sort of vividly, you know, the the pain and the soul of every employee of that company that went into creating the Virage, which was the first new car in thirty years, and people may dismiss it now, but. You know, in those days, it was it was basically a whole new car done by a load of very passionate people. As people at Aston always say, Aston Martin's not a job, it's a cause. People forget the perspective of what that company was in those days. You know, it was uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a small hand, everything handcrafted. It was a real labor of love. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, when they were doing the Virage, do you have like certain memories or of Aston kind of growing up or did you get to see any kind of early prototypes or do any kind of secret visits? Yes, because my father would often come home in prototypes, and which was usually his way out of speeding tickets. Um, <laughs> he was so charming that by the time, by the time they left, they'd forgotten why they'd stopped him. Fantastic. That wasn't a unique situation. That was a sort of regular occurrence. But of course, it was in those days, it was amazing because it was, yes, it was the chairman of a company in the only working prototype on the road. I love it. Oh, he sounds like such a wonderful character. And then I've heard, I've heard that your first drive in an Aston Martin was a DB2. I mean, how was that? Such an iconic car. I'll go back a little further, you know, in the interest of being really correct, because the first Aston I had, which did have an Aston chassis number, was built for my brother and I, which was a four sevenths, I think, scale or half scale Volante, V8 Volante. And that was with a little Honda motor. And um, there's some great pictures of us driving around near the factory in that. But yes, my first insured drive in an Aston, which I thought was appropriate, my first insured drive, I think, was the DB2, which was amazing. I mean, just to get behind the wheel of, it's difficult to, I suppose, having grown up with those wings appearing and disappearing down the driveway every day, and it being such a process, the whole Aston thing, it's unusual for me to understand what that brand means to other people, because it's just, it's just so, it's like burnt into my retinas and my memory. And it's, yeah, it's almost like if you see your own name from 10 yards away on a piece of large paper, you recognize your own name. And when I see that, I, I see it from a great distance and it brings back all sorts of things. 
I mean, it's amazing. And your dad was such a huge supporter of motorsport, as you've kind of mentioned a little bit there. And he was really instrumental in getting the Aston Martin brand back on the track. I mean, how important was that to him? Well, I think he saw it as hugely important because, again, he came from, you know, in that time it was. I mean, if you think of um, who was racing at Le Mans in those days, the amount of major manufacturers doing you know, full works teams, not not works supported or works derived. You know, they were full works teams. So I think he saw it as hugely important. And and I think it was a great opportunity to prove what he knew to be true. That was Aston had skills and engineering potential far beyond its means. And I think, you know, when they came seventh overall in 1989 but that was against porsche mercedes jaguar it was a huge achievement for a hand-built engine and a a hand-built carbon tub would you say that without your father aston martin would not be the brand that it is today well i that's where i really can hear him talking it's absolutely not really for me to comment um (laughs) lots lots of people are very sweet in saying um amazing things and and yeah certainly i i know that um many people do herald him as a savior of it and um you know i think it could have disappeared again that's for sure and um it would be strange if aston martin was some funny company that stopped making cars in 1980 it would be a very different uh sort of viewpoint yeah, I mean, it would be a travesty. Absolute travesty. Well, good on him. And just listening to you, I can just, he just sounds like such an amazing character and kind of miss miss those. And my grandmother, he sounds a little bit like my grandmother and she was amazing. And when they, when they first opened the M1, she took her Jaguar E-Type and said, right, I've got to go and test this car as fast as I can. And off she shot doing 150 miles an hour up the M1. Yeah. It was kind of like this wonderful era in these big characters. He sounds very special. And also, there's not many people that have cars named after them. And I was very, very lucky at Hampton Court Palace last year, where I have to say, I have to drop this in, that Chubb is the official insurance partner, of course. But I got to see the Aston Martin Victor. Wow. I mean, it's named after your father. What a car. Beautiful. I have to say, I thought it was epic. And that you're one step ahead. I never saw it in the flesh. My brother, who works at Aston, is so unbelievably correct. I, I didn't even know about it. Um, oh, he no, didn't. Typical. I didn't even know. But then I, I that morning, because it really exploded all over Instagram. And that morning I was seeing it and I was so, because I kept hearing Aston Martin Victor. So was so chuffed about the idea of a car being named. But that was immediately followed by, oh, God, what if it's terrible? And then I saw the picture and I thought, bloody hell, the absolute brute, as my father used to say, the brute in a suit. I mean, they've they've done an incredible job and there's so many bits that you can just see from all of those cars that, you know, he probably had influences on or designed that, that you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful testament, honestly. I'm not very up to speed on Aston Martin today, certainly not as much as one would think I was, but I have to say, I think their design department, when it comes to capturing nuances, I mean, that car, every little nuance, and they did the same with the Lagonda Taraf when they did that, the nuances from the 1970s Lagonda were so refined and so subtle, but exquisite. What a great car. Yes, I'd love a go in that. Yeah, so would I. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, amazing. Sign me up if he's listening. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, seriously, and it was in, it was like black and it was just like this beast and it was, everyone was going, 
well, hang on, because I don't think that they expected to see that. And they were like, what is that? You know, it was kind of like you didn't know if it was a classic, if it was modern. It had, you know, from certain angles. I love that old fashioned marketing of absolute silence. Well, as I said, I didn't know. And my brother was part of the project and he was showing it. And it was like, so this absolute silence followed by the big fanfare, I think was really, really old school and really cool. Loved it. And, and as you said, you must have been so proud. That's your dad's, yeah, very, dad's, very dad's cool. car. <laughs> it's yeah. lovely. And, and the fact that it was an epic car and everyone reacted so well to it made it just even cooler. Save up to 33% on Chubb Multicar Insurance. Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. So now let's move on to what you're doing. And there's a really interesting project they were working on, which is the Aston Martin Bulldog. Can you tell us more? Yes. Yeah, well, the, the Bulldog's uh, an interesting, well, it's an amazing car, but it, this this came out of a, a really great friend of mine um, who has some incredible cars, like proper, properly passionate petrol head, as in he believes that cars are there to be used. He has, uh, I don't know if you're aware of the Lancia Stratos Zero. Yes, which is, I am. You know, and, and he had that restored as it was originally, because the car did 3,000 miles or something in the year it was built. It's a properly working prototype. And so he and I had always chatted about Bulldog, you know, just, you know, you, you all know what long car conversations where you go down the rabbit hole for hours talking about what ifs. And one day he got a call from this guy, Alexander Weaver at um, RM Auctions saying, hmm, we've been approached about this car and we thought it might be a bit of you. And to which he, he responded completely affirmative and he managed to get the car and what's so amazing is, again, it's a true Aston story. You know, Aston was bust in 75, started building Bulldog in 78 with hugely limited, if not zero resource. William Towns drew this crazy wedge gullwing shape and the engineering department, bless them, had to engineer around William Towns' vision. Because it was, you know, I think in those days, there wasn't so much cooperation or understanding between those sorts of departments as there is now. So it was, here's the drawing, make it happen. And they did. And in 1980, it did a verified 191.8 admirer. Unbelievable. Keith Martin, who was driving, said, I wish there'd been more space because it was still accelerating and it was good and stable. By then, it had done a lot of press work, and the plan was to take it to the VW track at Wolfsburg in 81 and just prove that it could do the 200, which they knew it could. Unfortunately, Dad arrives January 81, and they've had two years of press out of the car. They know it's not the direction they're going in. And it was, you know, sadly, he was faced with a very simple, you know, set of decisions, which was make people redundant or sell Bulldog. Yeah, I mean, it's a very futuristic looking car, isn't it? It's got these gull wings. It's got this wedge nose. I mean, it was it was a real leap into the future, wasn't it? At the time. Yes, their remit and, and it's quite open was to build the ultimate supercar. And I think what's really cool, a lot of people, when you see a picture of it, a lot of you will think it's about the size of a Lotus Esprit, because that's kind of how it looks. And actually it's five meters long, it's over two meters wide. It's like a rocket. <laughs> it's a big car and it is, it is 43 inches tall. Wow, okay, that's because I've never seen one in the flesh. So um, 
No, and no one has because it disappeared. It, you know, it disappeared yeah, what happened to it? It was sold to a Saudi prince. Uh, one of the Saudi prince's families had it when he was a student in Seattle. And he also had three offshore powerboats parked outside his house. The, some of the stories I'm finding out from there are just uh, amazing. And then there were sightings of it. He hired a disused um, or, or hardly built uh, freeway in Arizona where he had a place and did some high speed testing in the mid 80s in the evening. And then it basically it, it sort of disappears and it resurfaces in storage units in the Middle East, in the very Far East, and then, you know, but 35 years without anyone having seen it run. What was the state of it when it was kind of refound? Pretty good, because it was a serious car. It had been kept in good storage, but had just obviously not run. It had just been sat in a corner. Uh, my guess, the only guess we can come up with is that they had some problems with the car, the wrong mechanic tried to fix it, and then they kept trying to fix the fix, if that makes sense, and never got it up and running again. So it's hugely exciting to have something that's been, you know, we know it really worked. It's an unfinished story because it never did the 200. And we are aiming to do the 200 by the end of this year, which will be 40 years since it was meant to do it. Oh, amazing. And did you, I mean, how much restoration have you had to do on it? Everything. Everything. So literally ground up. Yes. So we are being as ruthless as we can about originality, but one has to take safety seriously into consideration on a car with that level of performance. The world's changed. You wouldn't want to get in a car capable of that without rollover protection. The guys at CMC in Bridge North who are restoring the car have thrown everything at it and we've decided what we need and what's original. So basically the car will be 99% original and the only modifications are really for safety and you know a few other modifications which are available today to stop the thing chewing itself to pieces. And when do you think you will be able to get to that 200 mile an hour celebrations, I suppose? By the end of this calendar year is the plan. Really? Oh, how exciting. The car will hopefully be running in August, then we'll be into testing. Um, I'd like to do it before the end of this year. It's 40 years since it was meant to do it. And it would just be a lovely way of closing the book and finishing the story. We've got the lovely Darren Turner to drive it, who's an Aston Works driver and is the test driver for Valkyrie. And Valkyrie is Aston's first production serious mid-engined car. But of course, Bulldog was their first actual mid-engined road car. Ah, I bet not a lot of people know that. <laughs> the timing's rather lovely because, you know, Valkyrie's not their first hurrah, it's, it's, it's their current hurrah. What a wonderful tribute that would be to your dad as well. I mean, very, very special. And then I suppose the other thing I really want to talk to you about is that you're also part of the team to acquire the Myers-Manx. You're going to be relaunching it? Yes. So for those who don't know, Myers-Manx was the original dune buggy, or what everyone thinks of as a dune buggy, VW-based. We acquired the company after two and a half years talking with Bruce Myers, who sadly, just after we'd acquired the company, passed away age 94. He'd led an incredible life. He was at the Battle of Okinawa, and their ship was destroyed, and he saved two downed pilots. Then he joined the crew of, of the smouldering Hulk to try and get the ship back to shore. You know, he then went and set up a trading post in in the in the a sort of southern Pacific Islands, a swashbuckler, you know, in every sense. 
Um, so he had an incredible life. It's fascinating how well respected this car is. Again, in Europe, not so well known because of not necessarily as relevant, but we hope to change that. Not a huge amount of dunes in... Um... No. <laughs> in Europe, I would have to say. But what a lot of people don't know is that he, um, with this completely simple single piece fiberglass body, he went off um, and before the Baja 1000 off-road race existed, he and his mate decided to go and break the record and the record was always held by motorcycles. And he went in his completely standard prototype on all VW mechanicals and he broke the record across the Baja Peninsula by five hours. And it was him doing that that led to the formation of the Nora 1000 and the Baja 1000. And it became the first car to win it as well. So it real proper pedigree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got real history. Oh, this is really exciting. Yes. Well, you know, a lot of people would maybe think of it as a toy and it's not. It's They have serious off-road capability and they're just, oh, I mean, well, as we started adopting this smiles per mile slogan, just because that was all we could come up with as being everyone around it smiles and they're just bloody good fun to drive. You just um, get cheat cake. <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, it's really, we've got uh, Freeman Thomas who designed the modern, the first of the modern Audi TTs and the Beetle, and the modern Beetle. And he grew up in uh, Newport Beach in California where Myers Manx was made it, and he grew up at the time. So he's designing our uh, new models, which will come out in the future and obviously will not be internal combustion engines. So um, yeah, there's yeah, exciting times ahead and it's great to be part of uh, something sort of small and exciting and getting bigger. A friend of mine joked the other day from uh, Newport Pagnell to Newport Beach. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's very good. Oh, well, I can't wait. I'm going to have to come out and try one. It sounds oh, brilliant. Yes. I like the smiles for miles. That's a very good slogan. I like it. On top of these amazing projects you've got, um, you're, you've got a brilliant design career. Is that a big passion? Is it as big as your classic cars and your new kind of projects? I wouldn't say brilliant, I'd say varied. Yes, I'm passionate about design. And I suppose I was, before we we're speaking today, I was trying to think of, of why, and I think it all actually ties in together. I like the communication of emotion and you can find that from cars and you can do it through design, whether it be for a logo for a company as I do many of, or packaging for a product or a type of chair for a restaurant. There's a way of communicating huge amounts of messages through design. So I like talking, but I also like designing. It's just another method of communication to me and I love it. Is that varied? It's from doing interiors to seats to it's everything. Yes, I, I worked. I worked on one of the first ever Nespresso machines fitted to a private jet, um, which had to be made of all new materials. I mean, all sorts. I've designed furniture for people, logos, packaging. Yes, you name it. I'll if if I've got a good idea, I shall uh, lend my hand to it. What's been the most kind of funnest design project that you've done? Oh, I did a desk for a uh, a serious James Bond fan. I did a desk which looked like an amazing, uh, just an amazing old desk. But as you approached it, a little thing popped up. You put your thumbprint on it and then out came the iMac out of the back. Oh, stop it. And then it had a watch safe built in. Yeah, so it was basically, it was entirely full of secrets and valuables and gadgets. I love pure design. This was just purely extravagant design, but it was a wonderful thing to do. Working with that tech side as well would have been really fun. Yeah, that was, yes, working, you know, working with um, people at the forefront of tech and then the oldest fashioned craftsman 
as well. So it was a, a real, you know, the perfect juxtaposition. Like combining these two, how brilliant. Oh, well, I'd love to see that, but obviously I don't think this secret 007 fan will ever show it. <laughs> Probably not. I'm sure he'll call me if it goes wrong. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, how amazing. And I just love how varied everything is. It's just so, so interesting. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I've always said, I think I'd be probably a lot more successful if I could focus, but I love the variation. But the more I think about it, all of the themes are the same. It, you know, I think this idea of kind of communicating and storytelling, it's through the DNA of all the things I do. Yeah, I don't even know where to go with us with this next segment, which is basically we... Well, in this podcast, we run a special little theme called One Piece at a Time, where we ask our guests to select one prize possession. This is why I was like, I don't know where you're going to go. With oh, this God. is going to be really oh, interesting. How long is this? <laughs> I know. Guests have to select one prize possession to bring to the podcast. It could be part of a car, a photograph, an artifact, anything that has a really special, special memory to you or meaning. So may I ask, out of this wonderful, varied incredible career of of design and history what will that one piece be i'll try and make this description as rapid as possible i'm looking at a helmet um, a helmet with its original box it's a it's a helmet and it has a beautiful enamel saint christopher medal on the forehead and an old-fashioned visor and it's a it's a herbert johnson cardboard box with its stamps on and i'm sure you're all aware of the brooklyn's track and most people will know that it closed before the Second World War, just before the Second World War, and it never reopened. You might also know that when you when you go around the Brooklyn's track, when you did go around it, if you attained an average speed higher than 120 miles an hour, you got a special badge. And 17 people did higher than 130 miles an hour average speeds. So there are only 17 130 mile an hour badges. And this helmet, and next to it is the 130 mile an hour badge, was won by George Harvey Noble in a Bentley, wearing this helmet in the last race on the afternoon of August the 7th, 1939, which was the last ever race at Brooklyn's. And it was three weeks before war broke out. I've actually got goosebumps. Yeah. And I mean, so, so, I mean, I, I look at it every day and I, I still get goosebumps and I've got the photograph of him in that car and you can clearly see the helmet and the, and it's just, to me, that's the closest in my lifetime I'll ever come to time travel. And it's just really awesome. And you think of the, you know, the context and the world as it was then and one last sunny day at Brooklyn's before all hell broke loose. I think it's quite something. It was literally, you said two weeks before the war broke out. Yeah. August, yes. Yeah. God. And that was the last time anyone ever raced. And I'm sure many people who listen to this have walked on those bits of banking. And Yeah. And I mean, it was very synonymous with the Bentley boys at the time. You know, they were an extraordinary group of men that all kind of like went on and then were flying fighter planes and, you know, and... Yeah. How extraordinary. No, so it was an amazing time. But also, you know, to come off the sort of the, the ghostly aspect of all of that... To anyone who's ever stood or seen a photo of that banking, just imagine the average speed of over 130 miles an hour. They were made of different stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky to be up in Brooklyn and to drive cars around and to actually see the steepness of the banking. It is definitely something quite amazing to look at. Um, how extraordinary. I mean, will you take a picture and send it to us and then we can post it? Because I think everyone would really love to see that. I mean, myself included. Yeah, no, I shall do that. No problem. Don't tell anyone, but I think that's my favourite one piece of a time. <laughs> it really oh, is. Good. It I'm really pleased. is. How wonderful. And may I ask how you obtained it? Um, it was actually something that my father had. I don't have a huge amount of these objects from his times, but it was something that I absolutely just, again, that that time travel, that goosebumps, and the fact that it was last race, last day, you know, just amazing. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Keep hold of that, and I can't wait to see a picture. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such an interesting... I, I can just literally sit and talk to you for a long time. Your stories are brilliant. All your new projects, I want to wish you luck on the Bulldog, on the Mayor's Manx. I mean, it's, and and all your designs. Um, And I can't wait to see the Bulldog get to that 200 mile an hour. I will follow this. And I will also let our listeners know when you do it. Maybe I'll put a picture up, hopefully at the end of the year when, when you break the record. Hopefully it'll be all smiles, I hope. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, but thank you so much for joining my podcast and talking to me and sharing your wonderful, wonderful stories. It's been brilliant. Thank you. My great pleasure. Take care, Richard, and good luck with everything. Thank you. For a free non-committal insurance quote, go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. Well, that was absolutely fascinating, wasn't it? And now that Richard has shared his special one piece at a time, I would love for you, the listener, to share your own special piece. So please post a picture on Instagram or Facebook or send it on email. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, collect a car, or for email, classiccars at chubb.com, or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. So thank you so much for joining me today for the latest episode of the Chubb Interview Series, brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review, spread the word, and don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time, goodbye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.